Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. My name is Carl Eilert, and nearly three months after my operation, I am well on the road to recovery, ready to restart our journey through some of the most fascinating stories of Europe. Stories that helped form how the continent looks today. I will talk more about my recovery at the end of the show, but I'm impatient to get started with the next big subject of the podcast, the Hundred Years' War. Today I will give the background to this famous war, or rather, series of wars. The term Hundred Years' War was defined centuries after the events, and in many ways is pretty arbitrary. It covers a period of 116 years to be precise, from 1337 to 1453, during which there were often periods of peace, or at least uneasy truce. In addition, as we have seen in previous podcasts, the conflict between the two crowns of France and England started much earlier on. A more meaningful start date for the story would be 1066. Ever since Duke William of Normandy conquered England, his descendants were able to lay claim to lands on both sides of the Channel, not only Normandy but through a network of blood ties to various other regions on the continent. As for a more appropriate end date, a better year would arguably be 1558, when the English lost their last foothold in continental France, namely Calais. Should we then talk instead of a 400-year war? But then again, Anglo-French warfare even persisted several centuries after the Tudors, until finally 1904, when the two nations finally signed an agreement that was to last, the Entente Cordiale. From an English perspective, the most famous events of the Hundred Years' War were the famous victories at Crecy, Poitiers and Agincourt. I will focus in part on these battles during the narrative, but put them into context to help explain why, in spite of these English victories, the French were ultimately successful in driving out the enemy from the mainland. Joan of Arc played her part, but there were many other reasons as well. This period saw a large number of chroniclers at work in both England and France, and elsewhere in Europe. One change that occurred in England over this time was a greater use of written English instead of French, perhaps due to a growing sense of national identity. The best-known contemporary chronicler of the Hundred Years' War is Jean Froissart, a French-speaking author from the Low Countries. Froissart travelled extensively to gather materials and first-hand materials for his chronicles, whose content was heavily influenced by whatever royal or aristocratic audience he was writing for. One of his first works, written under the patronage of Robert of Namur, an ally of King Edward III of England, is very pro-English. Other works written when Froissart was associated with other patrons is much more sympathetic to the French. 
His intentions for writing he described as follow, quote, In order that the honourable enterprises, noble adventures and deeds of arms which took place during the wars waged by France and England should be fittingly related and preserved for posterity, so that brave men should be inspired thereby to follow such examples. End quote. The readability and romance of Froissart have ensured his lasting influence. In addition, lavishly illustrated copies of his text and of those of the Burgundian chroniclers Mostrelet and Morin were made in the later 15th century. As well as the more well-known texts, there survive a significant number of newsletters written from the front. Naturally, all contemporary writings of the period have their own biases and should, just as with any other period, be treated with caution. But we are fortunate to have a far richer breadth of sources than for earlier periods, among them a number of chronicles where the Anglo-French wars were not the primary subject. These include a text called the Brute Chronicles and the works of a monastic scholar, Thomas Walsingham. In previous podcasts, I described how the Capetian dynasty of Paris consolidated their authority over France in the early 1200s. King Philip II, Augustus of France, defeated the armies of King John of England to take control of most of north of France, most notably the Duchy of Normandy. And then in the mid-13th century, the end result of the Albigensian Crusade was the gaining control by Paris of the most of the south of the country. This left only three regions where the rulers were technically vassals of the King of France, but in practice still enjoyed a great degree of independence. Brittany, Flanders and Aquitaine. The Duke of Brittany and the Count of Flanders resisted central control. Aquitaine, meanwhile, remained in English hands as the rump of the continental parts of the once great Angevin Empire of King Henry II of England. During the 13th century, at the time of the growth of Capetian power, France enjoyed, as did much of Western Europe, a period of economic growth. Climatic factors may have helped. The region enjoyed warmer temperatures and less rain. There was also technological improvements such as improved windmills and water mills, the introduction of triennial rotation of crops, the spread of the use of the domestic spinning wheel, which boosted manufacture of textiles, and the compass, which made for more navigable ships. There was also an increase in precious metals, partly from imports of gold and silver from West Africa and the Near East, and also the growth of silver mining in Saxony, Bohemia, Spain and the France's Massif Central region. Better techniques in mining and metallurgy led not only to better arms, but to stronger and more resilient ploughs and agricultural tools. Much land was reclaimed by draining marshes as well as chopping down forests, thus forming a network of tens of thousands of villages within which French rural life has been lived out ever since. Economic growth and diversification were linked to a rise in population. France and its present-day frontiers had a population of perhaps 7.5 to 9 million under Charlemagne. By the beginning of the Hundred Years' War, it stood at between 18 and 21 million, perhaps 15 million of whom were directly under French kings. In comparison, England had a population of only about 3 to 3.5 million. The period experienced a level of urban growth greater than at any time since the ancient Romans. 
Whereas early medieval cities had essentially been religious and military centres, they now developed out of economics and trade, and so looked to the rivers and seas for expansion. Of the cities with more than 20,000 inhabitants in the 13th century, many commanded important waterways, namely Paris, Ghent, Ypres, Toulouse, Strasbourg, Tours, Orléans, Lyon, Lille and Metz, whereas the others, that is Bruges, Rouen, Saint-Omer, Montpellier, Narbonne and Bordeaux were all situated on the coast. The feudal elites were naturally attracted to the wealth generated by the increased trade, which they profited from through tolls and other Jews. The stone castles from which Castellans had earlier established a local power base often came to house local markets. Fortified walls were extended to include merchant houses and artisans' dwellings. Demand for luxury goods and services among the nobility also attracted many craftsmen to the towns that were growing up in the shadow of the castle. Much the same was true in towns with resident bishops and monasteries. The largest city in Western Christendom by 1300 was Paris. Here flourished a teaching community which evolved into the first university north of the Alps. In the 13th century it was divided into faculties of law, medicine and theology and became an alternative to the traditional education conducted within monasteries. The university's reputation was strongest in the field of theology and philosophy, where teachers attempted to reconcile the beliefs of Christianity with the learnings of the ancient world. It is here where the Italian Thomas Aquinas taught in the mid-13th century and helped provide a merger of the theories of Aristotle and the Church Fathers that ultimately became Church Orthodoxy for centuries to come. Paris was also the birthplace of Gothic architecture, which went on to become another expression of Capetian power. By the 1160s, the style was being used in a host of cathedrals around Paris, including Notre Dame, and by the 13th century, in numerous French cities. Their strong economic performance and associated renaissance of the arts gave the Capetians much prestige, but was certainly not down to the dynasty's efforts alone. France gained much from sources of mercantile power outside its border, notably Flanders and northern Italy, but also Aragon and northern Germany, home of the powerful trading corporation, the Hanseatic League. However, during the 14th century, both economic and population growth came to a halt. The problems of exhaustion of agricultural lands, a rising price of grain and widespread hunger all worsened from 1348 by the arrival of the Black Death, which recurred on average every decade. All this was exacerbated by political conflicts. The young states of Western Europe, in efforts to consolidate and increase their power, engaged in near-perpetual warfare, which not only led to death and pillage, but to an exceedingly heavy tax burden on the people. The largest of these conflicts was the so-called Hundred Years' War between England and France. Much happened between the 12th and 14th centuries, but in many ways the basic issues of English royal lands in France remained the same. The King of England, in his position as Duke of Aquitaine, was vassal to the King of France, but there were difficulties over the notion of one king paying homage to another, not least because this implied an obligation to provide military service against the French king's enemies. 
but the greatest problem was the French king's right to interfere in the governance of his vassal's lands. In particular, the French king could hear appeals that the subjects of a vassal might make against their lord. In 1201, Philip Augustus had used the refusal of King John of England to appear to his court and answer charges made by his vassals as a pretext to confiscate his fiefs. In the war that ensued, John lost most of his territories in France. The question of precisely what jurisdiction an overlord, in this case the French king possessed in his vassal's fief, remained crucial, as well as the right to hear appeals. Did royal officials, for example, have the right to collect taxes? The Capetians used their status as overlord to increasingly interfere, most notably in Flanders, but the kingly status of the English vassals presented unique problems. As royal administration developed in England, English kings naturally sought to strengthen their control over their continental territory of Aquitaine. At the same time, the kings of France were seeking to extend their authority over the whole of France. The Duchy of Aquitaine had always been the least integrated of all the Angevin lands. Its frequently feuding nobility had always enjoyed a degree of semi-independence. A lack of strict feudalism and a stress on Roman rather than customary laws meant that its rule remained an exercise in persuasion. Well, some nobles wavered in their loyalty and could be persuaded by the French king's officials to appeal against their lord, Others remained loyal to the English king, despite French pressure and the risk of personal loss. In fact, Aquitaine was never run entirely from England. Many of its local leaders were highly privileged because the lack of a large English garrison made their personal support crucial. They manned and financed the defence of the land, largely by themselves. This should not distract from the strong links between the regions, as evidenced by the fact that several Aquitanians found their way into administrative service in England. With this background, the narrative of the origins of the Hundred Years' War is as follows. King Henry III of England, son of King John, had been close to losing all French territory early in his reign. In 1224, his French counterpart... Louis VIII, son of Philip Augustus, invaded the province of Poitou. He successfully grabbed control of the port town of La Rochelle, which had been a vital English foothold on the continental coast, and a base for defence of recovery of possessions there. Meanwhile, the Aquitanian baron, Hugh de Lusignan, overran most of Gascony. The already truncated English rump of Aquitaine was reduced to Bordeaux and a few coastal towns, and in danger of being lost for good. Henry III felt keenly the desire to protect his lands abroad, yet it was not easy to persuade his barons that it was a cause either worth fighting for or paying for. He was mindful of what happened when his father, King John, had demanded military assistance and increase in taxes to pay for the campaign against France. When the venture failed, it provoked a national rebellion. The English barons forced John into agreeing to the Magna Carta of 1215, which set down on paper their rights and the limitations of kingship. Henry inherited his father's crown at the tender age of just nine. He therefore required a regent for the first years of his reign, and despite his best efforts was never able to free himself from the overpowering influence of the leading nobles. 
he only managed to persuade them to a new campaign in France by appealing to their fear of a French attack on England, and also by agreeing to a reissue and reconfirmation of the Magna Carta. So in the year 1225, a well-equipped expedition was sent to relieve Gascony. They drove back the French and prevented them from overrunning the last English possessions. The region's valuable wine trade was secured for what would be more than 200 years. Henry and his administration would have liked to organise yet further campaigns, but in spite of this success was unable to persuade his barons to continue. According to the historian Dan Jones, an important consequence of Magna Carta was that finance for military expeditions now had to be bargained for with an assembly of barons, bishops and other magnates. Although this could hardly be described as a parliament, it was at least something like the beginnings of what would become one. The feudal prerogatives of kings and their rights over their subjects were now a matter of debate and discussion for the political community. For more than 30 years, Henry continued to hope for a reversal of fortunes, but never succeeded in gathering enough resources for what was required for a successful foreign campaign. In 1259, he was compelled to reach a compromise agreement with King Louis IX of France. The two kings signed the Treaty of Paris, where Henry surrendered his claims and titles to Normandy, Anjou, Maine, Touraine and Poitou. In return, the treaty confirmed Henry's possession of Aquitaine and made territorial concessions to bring the size of the duchy back to almost the extent held in 1204. Much had happened in the areas since they had been lost, so that not all the conceded lands could be handed over immediately. As a result, the clauses concerning these areas were very complicated and ultimately responsible for much future Anglo-French disagreement. The treaty did at least lead to a period of relative calm and hostilities would not break out again until the 1290s. By this time, the King of France was Philip IV, known as the Fair on account of his handsome appearance. He came to the throne in 1285 at the age of 17, just over a century after his illustrious predecessor, Philip Augustus, had succeeded at a similar age. In contrast to the strict feudal hierarchies of that earlier time, administration had been greatly centralised. There were now clearly defined departments of state and the main local administrators were salaried officials who were more closely accountable to the king. Also the French church, at least in the north, had become closely bound to the monarchy. Consequently, some French historians, such as Thierry and Michelet, saw Philip IV beginning a process which led to the destruction of traditional medieval forces and opened the way for the development of the French national state. More recent writings reject these views. Philip's attitudes and policies appear far more in tune with those of his predecessors than with any modern idea of statehood. A common sense of French national identity was developing, but still a work in progress, as evident in the diversity in languages and customs. The French king travelled rarely outside certain limited areas, and his subjects showed a reluctance to attend his meetings of the estate général, or pay tax on a regular annual basis without the perception of a distinct crisis. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Like his English counterparts, Philip IV of France was always in the need of more cash partly as debts from his father's war against Aragon and partly for his own campaign against Flanders. He therefore seized the assets of the local Jews, expelling tens of thousands of them from his territories in July 1306. His financial victims also included rich abbots and the Lombard merchants who had earlier made him extensive loans. When Philip also levied taxes on the French clergy to finance an attack on English held Gascony, he caused an uproar within the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy. Traditionally, such taxes could be raised to support a crusade, but Philip's campaign could hardly be so described. Furious, Pope Boniface VIII issued a bull to forbid the taxation of clergy or church property without express authorization from Rome. Philip responded defiantly by barring the entry of papal tax collectors into his lands. Since the papal exchequer relied heavily on income from France, Boniface had no alternative but to climb down, attempting to reconcile with Philip by agreeing to canonise the king's grandfather, King Louis IX. The feud between Boniface and Philip IV reached its peak in 1301, when Philip arrested a papal legate on charges of inciting an insurrection. Boniface appealed to Philip to listen modestly to the Vicar of Christ as the spiritual monarch over all earthly kings. He protested against the trial of churchmen before Philip's royal courts and the continued use of church funds for state purposes. In return, Philip convoked an assembly of bishops, nobles and grand bourgeois of Paris in order to condemn the Pope. Neither side backed down, and the next year, when William Noguet, Philip's chief minister, denounced Boniface as a heretic, the Pope excommunicated Philip. In response, Philip sent Noguet to lead an army to seize the Pope and bring him, by force if necessary, to France. When the people of Anani, the town where the Pope was staying, rose to defend him, Noguet was forced to back down. Boniface, however, never recovered from the shock and died less than a month later. Boniface's successor lived for less than a year, after which the cardinals became deadlocked in their choice of who would be their next Pope. After a year of dispute between the French and Italians, they finally decided in June 1305 upon an outsider, the Archbishop of Bordeaux, who took the name of Clement V. King Philip insisted that since the new Pope was already in France, he should be crowned there. Clement most likely intended to travel to Rome in due course, but decided to remain in France for a while, in the hope of negotiating an end to hostilities between France and England. 
he hoped in vain that the two kingdoms would combine their forces for another crusade to the Holy Land. For four years, Pope Clement travelled around France. By now, the College of Cardinals was predominantly French, even more so when in December 1305 he made ten more cardinals, nine of whom were French, four of whom were his own nephews. King Philip IV, meanwhile, kept up the pressure to keep him in France. In 1309, Clement decided to settle in an obscure little town called Avignon, a papal enclave surrounded by French territory on the banks of the River Rhone. Avignon came to be the seat of the papacy for the next 68 years, as well as the pressure from the French court, an important reason for such a long stay was the dangers of getting tangled up in the seemingly endemic conflict between the leading families in Rome. The seven popes who resided in Avignon are sometimes seen as puppets of the French kings, but they always retained a degree of independence. Clement V, though, did little to protect the Knights Templar, when in 1307 they were charged with treason by Philip. On Friday the 13th, October 1307, its French members were arrested, tortured and forced to confess to heresy. It was nothing other than a blatant attempt by the French king to remove an alternative power base and acquire for himself the riches of the order. These he intended to use to help finance his conflict with England. The King of England at the time was Edward I, son of Henry III. A nickname Longshanks for his great height, Edward proved himself a great military commander, though he focused his efforts within the British Isles instead of France. He is most famous for his conflicts with the Welsh and Scottish. While Edward was attempting to stamp his authority on Scotland, Philip IV of France was attempting similar moves on the English king. In October 1293, Philip summoned Edward to his court to answer complaints that had been made against his officials in Aquitaine. Edward did not appear in person, but was quite prepared to negotiate. The confiscation by Philip of Aquitaine in May 1295 can only realistically be seen as an aggressive tactic used to deprive the English king of his fief, and the removal once and for all of the Plantagenets from France. The French were certainly more prepared for war, and in very little time took virtually all English-held lands in Aquitaine. The English were too occupied with a rebellion in Wales, and then another in Scotland, encouraged by the French, to send a rescue expedition. The French would almost certainly have succeeded in their war objectives, had they not been distracted themselves by trouble with Flanders, who were once more in rebellion with the encouragement of Edward. The English were just about able to cling on to a coastal strip of western France and to recover Bordeaux. Anglo-French relations had been irreparably damaged, but distractions on both sides forced an uneasy truce. When a full peace came in 1303, also called the Treaty of Paris, both Edward and Philip were still distracted elsewhere. While the English were still at war with the Scots, the French had just suffered an ignominious defeat of their own at the hands of the Flemish at Courtrai in 1302, known as the Battle of the Golden Spurs. The new Treaty of Paris did little more than re-establish the status quo by restoring all lands to Edward in return for the payment of homage to the French king. Perhaps the greatest hope of peace and reconciliation lay in the marriage of Philip's daughter, Isabella, to Edward's eldest son. 
but Anglo-French relations remained strained, and the Union actually ended up causing more problems. The crossing of the English and French royal bloodlines became the basis of King Edward III of England's later claim to the French throne, and so the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. So that was the first part of two of the introduction to the Hundred Years' War. I'd like to say a few words off script about uh, my recovery and return to the podcast. Yesterday I had an MRI scan and I saw the, the surgeon. He was basically very happy. Uh, 90% of the tumour is removed. We knew that there was a little bit left. Um, it looks like we're not going to have to do any more work on it. At the moment, just keep an eye on it and, um, and hopefully it will just uh, be okay. Um, so that's good news. Uh, I still need a little bit of physiotherapy on my left leg, uh, which was the symptom of the, of the brain tumour, but that's basically on track as well. Uh, I have to thank you for all the kind messages uh, during that last three or four months, wishing me well um, on uh, email or Facebook or Twitter or, or blog. Um, a special thank to my Patreon.com supporters uh, for sticking with me during that time. Uh, I've applied to many, but I apologise to anybody who I've not had a chance to uh, reply to. Um, that has been really useful feedback in many ways, all the comments that you've given me and some of the reviews as well on iTunes or other places, which I, which I do take a look at. Um, it's good to know when I'm on the right track, good to know the, the positive things that people are getting out of it. Uh, it's also nice to know where people are listening from, f- from as far wide as Canada or Qatar or more places, I don't know exactly. But so, yeah, if you want to tell me where you're listening from, I'd be very interested. Uh, one review kind of sticks out in particular. Um, he described the podcast as a no-nonsense neutral history. And I quite like that because that is the aim of the podcast. I remember about a year into the podcast, um, I was explaining it to a friend and he asked me if it was an interpretive history and I probably didn't answer uh, very well at the time and then I thought about it and deliberated and I decided, no, it's not. The idea is just to be a, um, a description of what I think are the important things which happened in the grand sweep of human history, or rather European history. You see, the goal is really to get a historical narrative that everyone can agree on, people from different countries. I think more important in this time of rising nationalism, where people choose deliberately selective historical narratives to suit their own personal biases. So basically what I'm saying is, if you think I'm wrong, then yeah, send me a mail or any kind of communication to, to, to correct me. So far, I've only received one correction, and that was to do with pronunciation. So either people are not not telling me, or I'm 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 doing quite well so far. Anyway, there are sometimes where uh, there are different points of view which I put across, um, such as take Alexander the Great was he a a crazed, ruthless megalomaniac, or was he a culturally enlightened individual ahead of his time, or both? I had a discussion about that a little bit. So I, I, I do have other things as well. So sometimes there's not one understood truth, but um, a, a discussion to be had, and that's cool. So basically, what I'm saying is, feel free to get in touch. Any questions, comments, 
um, I'm looking forward to hearing from you um, or just listen to the next episodes of History of Europe Key Battles podcast next week will be the second part of the introduction to the Hundred Years War so until then have a great week um, have a great Christmas and goodbye 